We're in a series where we are looking at the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's originally one book written by a couple different people, but written as one book and then separated into two different volumes when they switched from scrolls to books. But we've been studying it from this perspective of the fact that everybody in the book is kind of looking for something. They're pursuing something. There's one king who is afraid that another guy is going to take over his kingship, and so he's pursuing that other guy to kill him. There's a woman who wants to have a child, and she's pursuing the fact, she's pursuing a child, really, somehow. But behind the scenes throughout the whole story, we see God, and God is doing his own pursuit. And it culminates in this verse that we've looked at a number of times, 1 Samuel 13, 14, which just simply says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. God is seeking, he is pursuing someone who would pursue him back. God is after someone who'd be after him. God is seeking someone who would be seeking him. And God is looking for someone who carries some of the characteristics of God's own value system as well. And so that's what this passage is all about. But then... A few weeks ago, we found him. His name is David. He's the guy who kills Goliath by slinging a stone at him. And he's the guy who then becomes anointed to be the next king. And now he's on the run from the current king because the current king is trying to kill him. But so far, we have seen David, compared to Saul, have an incredible character. Saul, for time and time again, we've seen Saul just only concerned with his own reputation, his own what's best for him. But David has been concerned with what glorifies God, and David has been concerned with what helps the people around him. And so David is a completely different person from Saul. But just because David is different from Saul doesn't mean that David's perfect. In fact, sometimes David can fly off the handle. Sometimes he can have a temper. And we've already seen a time when David was so overcome with fear that he deceived the people around him. So he's not perfect. And today, we're going to see David begin to fall into imperfection. We're going to see David begin to slide into this area. And he gets saved by the incredible wisdom of a woman. So it's a great Mother's Day kind of passage today. Uh, I, think it'll, I think it'll be fun for us to look at some of these things. But as we just begin to lead into this, my big overarching question for you is, and especially moms, I know you have an answer for this, but how do you deal with it when you are underappreciated? How do you deal with it when the people around you are ungrateful for all that you've done for them? How do you deal with it personally, emotionally, when you know that you deserve a certain level of respect and it's not coming back to you? How do you deal with it personally? Today, we're going to find out how David tried to deal with it and how he was wrong. And, uh, So on the journey, I think we're going to learn some interesting things. But anyway, if you have your Bible or whatever you're using, let's open it up. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 25 and 26, those two chapters. And it begins with a story of three people. David, of course, he's our main character in the story. And then a new guy that we're meeting named Nabal, or I might accidentally pronounce his name Nabal, uh, but it's Nabal, that's the way you would pronounce it. And then Abigail, I'm using her English-American kind of pronunciation just because it's a really popular name, common name. Here it is, verse 25. 
It says, now Samuel died, and I would love to spend time talking about the significance of Samuel's life or talking about the significance of his death, but I can't because the text doesn't. Apparently, Samuel has stopped writing at this point in time, and someone else has picked up the story because you can't usually write your own story of your own death. But anyway, so Samuel dies, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. So just real quick, here's David, and he has been living kind of in a hovering relationship near Samuel, because Samuel is the guy who anointed him to be the king, and Samuel, David has respect for Samuel, so he's been, he's been kind of hovering in the region where Samuel was, but now Samuel's dead. And so the whole opening chapters of the book of Samuel are over. All of that stuff is in the past, now David is moving on. There's still Saul as the leader of everything, but now David has to figure out what his role is in this new Samuel-free life, and he moves away from the area of Ramah where Samuel was into the desert. And keep going. It says, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Uh, just a quick comment about Calebite. Caleb was one of the two spies who entered the land of promise, who then said that they, he was convinced that God would be able to deliver the land into their hands. It was Caleb and Joshua who were the spies that trusted God. Well, if you remember the story, when Caleb was 80 years old, he entered into that land finally after the 40 years of wilderness wandering. He enters into the promised land. He's 80 years old, and he goes up to Joshua, and he says, Joshua, I'm going to conquer people myself. Give me some land. And so Caleb is just like this feisty warrior-type dude who even when he's 80 years old, he's still feisty. So we are told that this guy, Nabal, is a descendant of Caleb, which means this guy, Nabal, probably pictures himself as a feisty dude. And then the text tells us that he is surly and mean. But his wife was beautiful and intelligent. There's one other thing you need to learn. The Hebrew word Nabal, and this is one of the reasons why I'm going to continue to pronounce it this way, the Hebrew word Nabal is the word for fool. I don't know what mom gave this guy that name. Or more likely, it was a nickname that more likely someone else gave to him and for whatever reason, stuck. It stuck so well that in our text, we don't know what his real name is if it's something other than Nabal. We just know him as capital F Fool. That's his name. Now, the reason that's important is that it will actually show up a couple more times in this story, but Nabal is a foolish man. And we have to know coming into this story that Abigail is smart and beautiful and Nabal is surly and mean and his name is fool, right? Women. Um, this would be the time on a Mother's Day where I would say something along the lines of, do any of you feel like you are married to a Calebite? Do any of you feel like you're in a relationship with a Nabal? 
Let me just encourage you, if you are in a relationship with someone who is surly and mean, and you are not married, find a way out, and if you are married, find extreme levels of counseling. This is just my, my blanket advice. Um, it's frequent, it's far too often that some Abigail will marry some Nabal or get in a relationship with some Nabal, and I'm not exactly sure how that thing happens. I'm frankly confused as to why my Abigail married me, but the point, the point is that we are, we are in a situation that all of us can relate to. Men, if you are Nabal, shape up. Learn something from today, okay? Uh, women, if you are connected to a Nabal, well, you know, the best you can do is be like Abigail in this story. We'll see, we'll see what can happen here. But it proves to us that the story we're looking at is a story that relates to where you and I live on a regular basis. I think it's going to make perfect sense as we progress through this story, and it's going to have some pretty important implications for us. Pick it up again in verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now, I need to give you a little bit of a context. Because when I was a kid, I, I thought this was really kind of a confusing passage. It's like when I was on the playground, it's like me going up to my friend's mom or a person that I knew, up to that person's mom. And I said, hey, when I was on the playground with Jimmy, I didn't punch him in the face. So can you give me some candy? Like that's what, that's what it seems like to me. When I was with this person, I didn't injure them. And so therefore, you owe me something. That's not exactly what's going on here. See, if you remember the context, if you were back in that day and age, sheep, flocks, herds, whatever you had, that was your bank. That was your money. That was where all your wealth was stored. I mean, there were some people who had land, and there were some people who had animals, and the animals were your money. And the biggest problem with sheep is that sheep are money that lives out in the wilderness and can wander away. Now, if you have dollar bills that are just strewn about your yard, like if, you're, if your whole income, your, your family savings was just on your yard and someone walked past and said, as long as I have stood out here in front of your house for the past five years, no one has stolen any money. But now my family is in need. Can you help us? That's a person you'd be like, oh, you're the reason that I haven't lost any of my money. You're the reason that I haven't, because see, here's the deal. Back in these days, if you wanted to become rich the easy way, totally the easiest way to do it is to steal someone's sheep. And if they have a lot of them, you steal a few of them. You don't steal all of them, just a few of them. They won't ever know until it's sheep shearing time when they're counting them because they're all just wandering around anyway. And so back there in this time, theft 
was rampant. I mean, it was just common. It was just normal. And David is saying that while these shepherds were in the region where David was, David and his men had taken special care to protect the shepherds and the sheep from any robbers or anything else that might have hindered them or damaged them. And so now David is saying it's sheep shearing time. You're counting your sheep. You know how many you have. Ask your workers, are any missing? Have you experienced any business loss whatsoever? And the answer is, no, he hasn't. And it's because of David. So here's David. And he has invested how much energy? I don't know. How much energy to try to make sure all of these sheep are protected and all these shepherds are protected? And so he's going to Nabal and he says, but now my men are hungry. And this is Harvest time, festival time, sheep shearing time. This is when you cash in your checks. This is when you get the income from all of this effort. And so now, since everybody's celebrating, will you share with us? Does that make sense? Do you get the picture here? It makes perfect sense. It's reasonable. It's rational. It's absolutely the right thing to do. Verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Which, hang on a second, by the way, you don't say who is this guy if you know his dad, right? Who is this son of, he knows Jesse is his dad. Back in this culture, this is not a statement of I don't know who David is. In fact, read the rest of it and you'll see he definitely knows who David is. He says, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Hint, hint, David who's running away from King Saul. See, he knows the story. He knows the story of who David is. He knows he's Jesse's son. He knows he is on the run from Saul. He knows that David is David. He probably even knows about David and Goliath and all of that. In fact, I'm certain he does because his wife makes a reference to it later on in this story. But he knows who David is. This is not a question of knowledge. This is a question of respect. He's saying, who is that dude? I don't care about him. It's a disrespectful statement. Why should I take, verse 11, why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Nabal is a fool. And I want to show you the first thing that fools do. One of the first characteristics of a fool is that fools are disrespectful and ungrateful. Fools are disrespectful and ungrateful. There's a weird thing that Nabal does there where he seems like he's acting as if every blessing that's in his life is his own. And he's just been Mr. Generous to give some of his own food to his servants. He's just been Mr. Generous to take care of his own shepherds. But it's his. It's his stuff. It's his slaughter. It's his meat. You get that? Nabal has this weird idea that all of the blessings in his life are his own. And the truth of the matter is that that's wrong. I want to get on just a, a tiny little side tangent here for just a little bit because 
I think this is an important principle for us to really grasp. I try to emphasize this principle on every one of our gratitude Sundays when we talk about showing gratitude for God, to God for the blessings he's brought into our lives. I could make the same point just because it's Mother's Day, showing gratitude for your mom. The basic idea is this. All of the blessings in our life, almost all of them, have come through an unknown journey to reach us. You have no idea what your mom went through for nine months. You've heard some of those stories, right? You've heard some, but not all of them. And she's given you a whitewashed version of the labor experience, but you haven't ever asked for the details because you don't want to know all that. And we have no idea the chain of events that lead to our blessings. My dad met my mom in college. They were both at Wheaton College. And I am very glad that they met. Because if they had not met at Wheaton College, I would not be here. I would not have met my wife. All kinds of things. It's just like my entire world would be non-existent. I'm very glad that my dad met my mom at Wheaton College. That's one of the blessings in my history that I know about. My dad was able to go to Wheaton College, a private Christian school, because there was another man who had given him a scholarship to pay his entire tuition, his room and board, and gave him a very small monthly stipend while he was at college, which gave him the ability to, even though he was extremely frugal, once take my mom out on a date. And so this fellow, with all of his wealth and money, gave my dad a scholarship. And you know what? I don't know his name. My dad was a caddy at a golf course for this dude. And this dude, when my dad was getting close to going to college, uh, this guy asked my dad what he wanted to be when he grew up. And my dad said that he was thinking about going to college, but he couldn't afford it. And this rich guy that he was caddying for, for a number of years at this golf course, said, well, I run a foundation. How about you apply for the scholarship that we might be able to offer? And my dad applied. He interviewed in front of these people. And of course, he had the guy running the foundation give his backing to this thing. And so he got the scholarship, which was this incredible thing, which led to him going to Wheaton College, which led to him marrying his, my mom, which led to all kinds of other things, including me. But I don't know that guy's name. And I don't know the foundation. And you know what else? I don't know where the money came from. You know, it's possible. Just, if I go hypothetical, it's possible that one of these days someone might knock on my door. I mean, it might be more likely now that I've said this story out loud, but it, it might be that someone would knock on my door and be like, I'm the grandson of that dude who your dad caddied for. And my family now is destitute. We gave all of our money away and then we lost it in some of the stock market crashes and now we have no money. And my family and I live here in Lafayette and we're wondering if you might be able to do something to help. I would be a fool to say, nope, sorry, all my blessings are my own. I would be a fool to say, no, no, there's no reason for me to ever consider helping you. What have you ever done for me? Because that guy's granddad is the one who gave the money that my dad could go to the Wheaton College so that he could meet my mom and I could be here, Right? No, I would authentically, because I'm trying to not be a fool in my life, I would authentically want to show this guy respect, no matter who he is or what he's been through. 
And I would authentically want to give this guy some sort of gratitude. I would feel a debt of gratitude towards this guy. But as I said, I don't know where that money came from. What would it have been like if I someday find out that the money that got my dad to Wheaton College had come from the textile industry in Pennsylvania that had made all of its profit off of purchasing cheap cotton from the southern United States from exploiting people for no pay? What would, what would happen in my life if I had learned that some of my own benefits had come through this chain of events that actually came from the exploitation of people? Would I feel a sense of respect towards those people who sacrificed their lives for so long that I might have this benefit? Would I feel some sense of maybe a debt of gratitude that I should offer some of these people who had been exploited for so long that I might be able to even be here? As I begin to think through that line, there's a part of my heart that is just like Nabal that says, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to think those thoughts because I'm responsible for my own blessings. These are my sheep. This is my meat. And if I give it to anyone, it's pure generosity because I'm such a good guy. That's the way I want to live. I want to, I want to believe that I'm a good guy who doesn't have a long chain of blessings that led to where I am. But that's what fools do. Fools are the people who are disrespectful. Fools are the people who are ungrateful. Fools are the people who receive the blessings that came to them through some long chain and they just think they're theirs. And so Nabal looks to David and he says, I don't care what you've done and I don't care if I now know the truth. It doesn't matter. They're still my blessings and I'm keeping them for me. Okay, so that's the first fool that we see in the story. You're about now to see the second fool in the story, and it's David, because his response is just as equally foolish as Nabal. Here we go. Let's pick it up. We're in verse 12 now. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him." Man, that's a phrase that I, I feel like I want to say in other contexts a lot. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal, oh my goodness, women, how many times have you known that you needed to do the right thing, but if you told that guy in your life, he might be like upset about it. I don't know. I hope that's never, never 
true in my relationships, but Abigail experiences this thing. She doesn't tell her husband because she knows he's such a wicked man. No one can talk to him. Verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Here is David's plan, okay? David's plan is to go to Nabal and kill literally everyone he finds if they're a guy. Just every one of them. And that is proof that David is just as foolish as Nabal. But while Nabal was foolish in the sense that he was ungrateful and in the sense that he was disrespectful, David, David was acting like a fool because he was being impulsive and vengeful. Fools are impulsive and vengeful. It's the foolish people who see the other person's activity in their life. And they say, it's that person's fault. See, this is weird. Um, when it comes to our blessings, we are very rarely willing to point our fingers backwards at the causes of our blessings. We want to embrace our blessings for ourselves. But when it comes to our problems, we are very eager to point our fingers backwards at the other people who have caused our problems. We don't want to point our finger back at the people who caused our blessings, but we definitely want to point our finger back at the people who caused our problems. And here's David, and he's impulsive and vengeful because Nabal has caused him problems. Now, let's just be clear. David is in 100% exactly the same position today as he was yesterday. The only thing that's different is that yesterday he was expecting to get something from Nabal, and today he's realized he's not. But he had the same amount of men. He had the same amount of resources. He's got 200 men staying back to watch the supplies, which means he has enough supplies to require 200 men to watch them. Right? It's not like David is dying here. It's not like David and all his men are never going to make it through this. David is in exactly the same place today as he was yesterday. But he's been disrespected. And so he responds with vengeance and impulsivity because he's telling the story in his head that Nabal somehow deserves it. But the truth is that David is being a fool. And now we pick it up in verse 23 with Abigail. And she is about to lay down a speech that you can analyze from a number of different ways. On the one hand, it's just perfect rhetoric. The way she changes David's mind about things is a pattern all of us should follow when we're trying to change someone's mind on something. Because it's just utterly brilliant. But on top of that, she is teaching us a spiritual principle that is so important if we get it true in our own lives we will never need someone else to talk us down from the ledge. 
If we get it true in our lives, we will never need someone else to come in and convince us of the right thing to do. Here's Abigail's speech, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to you, my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Interesting exercise here. You could just count the number of times she uses the word Lord, and it's like all over the place. But I want to highlight for you where she starts her speech. Her speech starts with three very simple concepts. She says to David, you're the king, I'm your servant, Nabal's a fool. Okay? You're the king, I'm the servant, Nabal's a fool. I'm a servant, I would, if I knew better earlier, I would have been involved earlier, but I didn't know better earlier, and so I just want to reaffirm that I'm your servant. You're the king. You have no responsibilities here to, to think that you have to honor Nabal, and Nabal is a fool. Let me, let me just help you understand something here. She begins the way lots of stories begin by giving you the characters in the story. David, let's just remember the characters in the story. There's David, the king. There's Abigail, a servant of the king. And there's Nabal, a fool. Every king needs a fool, right? And so, David, here is the narrative. Here's how the narrative begins. And the reason this is so important is that the stories we tell ourselves change everything. The stories we tell ourselves. Just think about this one story Nabal says. I have worked so hard for all of my men and my sheep. I deserve to be respected by these losers who are traipsing around the land thinking they can get something for free when I never felt the need for that. I did this work by myself. I pulled myself up from my own bootstraps. I don't owe David anything. The story Nabal tells himself is one thing. The story David tells himself, I've been working so hard to protect this guy's servants, to protect his sheep, to make sure he's got no problems whatsoever, and they never reported it back to him, so now I have to initiate that, and so now I'm sending my men to go talk to him directly, and he disrespects me like this? What kind of jerk is that guy? The stories we tell ourselves make all the difference. But if Nabal had told himself the story, I'm so grateful for the fact that I am not alone and there are other people out there who are looking up for my interests. And if David had told the story, I'm the king and I made the choice to care for this fool's sheep, he could move on. 
The stories we tell tell all the different aspects of our lives inside our own hearts. And the same thing goes for you and for me. When we encounter those moments where we feel like we're being disrespected, we can lay into it or we can tell ourselves a different story. When we come to that place where we feel like we deserve something or someone else should be grateful to us, the story we tell ourselves changes everything. Over these past few years, you have seen time and time again when a loved one in your life has told themselves a story that you thought was false, and yet it changed everything about their life and their relationship with you. The stories we tell matter. And so Abigail comes and she starts with, let's just cover the characters. There's a king, there's a servant, and there's a fool. Now that we have the characters squared away, what's the next part of the story? And the next thing she says is something I'm going to summarize with this phrase. Your better future has already been decided. If you have your Bibles, flip back into it and just take a look at verse 28. It's fascinating. She says, and now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed. Wait a minute. Has he? Since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself. David is literally on his way to do bloodshed, right? He's on the way to do bloodshed. He has just said, may God curse me if I leave any of Nabal's men alive. David is on his way to avenge himself. He's on his way to do bloodshed. And the lady says, Abigail says, God has prevented you from doing so. Since God has prevented you from doing so. But this is fascinating. The preventing hasn't happened yet. I mean, it's actively happening right then in that moment as she's talking to him, but she speaks as if it's in the past. And then look what she says. Because God has prevented you from doing this, she says, may your enemies be like all who, enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. Nothing bad has happened to Nabal yet. She says, may all your enemies be like Nabal. Well, what's Nabal currently like? Nabal is currently feasting. Nabal is currently eating his food. Nabal is currently being ungenerous, ungrateful. Nabal currently is in a great position. And, the, and Abigail says, may all your enemies be like Nabal. Because see, what she's doing is she's painting a picture of the future. She's painting a picture for David of the story that could be if he does something today. The story that could be is a story of all of David's enemies finding the same fate that Nabal finds. Well, Nabal hasn't, he hasn't had any bad fate, right? But she's assuming that if God is in charge, maybe Nabal will have some sort of fate that David's enemies would also have. She takes this approach that says, if we paint the future as if it's already been decided, maybe the motivation can be there. If you're taking notes, write this down. Your better future has already been decided. There's such a power in decision. And she's saying that I can see God leading you somewhere, but it depends on some moment having been decided before now. Look at verse 28. She says, So please forgive your servant's presumption, 
The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. You don't fight David's battles. You fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. What Abigail is saying here, she says, no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. He is literally on his way to murder a bunch of people. But she says, God is going to prevent you from doing wrongdoing your entire life. In other words, his future, this future that she's painting for him, this future that he would want to have, the future where he is the king and Nabal is just a fool, this future that David wants to have depends on each moment between now and there. The better future for David and the better future for you and me depends on each and every moment that takes us from here to there. You fight the Lord's battles, not your own. You could choose to fight your own battles, but you need to choose to fight the Lord's. And you could choose to do wrongdoing, but you need to not choose that because your better future depends on each moment of your life. Verse 29, this is where I think she just takes the rhetoric dagger and twists it. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, she knows about Saul. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Get this picture. Get this picture. You are being pursued by an evil man. But God is going to take you in his hands and he's going to put you in a little bundle with all the other things he protects. But the things that shouldn't be in that little bundle, he's going to take out of this little pouch He's going to put it in a sling and he's just going to fly it away. Do you think David knows how to use a sling? Do you think anything would come to mind for David when he hears this story about all his enemies being flung away as if from a sling? Do you think David might have any recollection whatsoever of the fact that God has always been and always will be his advocate? See, that's Abigail's point here. That's what she's ending with in this story. She's like, listen, David, you got to know something. You have never been on your own. You have never been in need. You have never been the person who just had to have some fool show you respect. That's never been you. You have always been the person that God has protected like a stone in a pouch. And your enemies have always been the people that God has taken out of the pouch and flung away from you. Because David, guess what? God is your advocate. You don't need to have any of this other stuff. The stories we tell ourselves make so much of a difference. I'm a king. I'm surrounded by servants. This guy's a fool. God has taken care of me. God will take care of me. He's my advocate. That's the story. And it really kind of raises this question. If your life is a story, what kind of story do you want it to be? 
When your life is just a story, what kind of story do you want to tell? Look at verse 30 and 31 here. It says, When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing He promised concerning Him and has appointed Him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on His conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged Himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David, when all of this is just a story you tell, what kind of story do you want to tell? When all of this is a story that you tell, do you want to tell the story of the time where you took 400 men to slaughter a fool and some servants? David, when this story is a story that you tell, do you want to tell the story of a time when you were so upset at someone who had just violated your sense of respect that you decided to take revenge by slaughtering an entire household? David, when this is a story that you tell, do you want to tell the story of your viciousness or God's goodness? See, I want you and me to live out a story of God's goodness. I think wise people live out a story of God's goodness. Wise people live in the present as if God is in charge of the future. Wise people live chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 because they know that God is the one who has the twist ending. They know that God is the one who is writing the conclusion as we speak, as we move. He knows the end. He has the plan. Wise people live in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 knowing that there is a chapter up ahead where God is going to work everything out for some glorious purpose. Wise people live their part of this great story, a story of God's goodness. The question is, are we willing to trust God? I'm going to race through the basic gist of the story in chapter 26. I'll summarize for you how the end of chapter 25 happens. It's interesting, weird. Basically, David just says to Abigail, thank you for being smarter than any of the rest of us. He says to Abigail, thank you so much for rescuing me from doing all this. And in fact, he repeats some of the words that she uses. He says, thank you, Abigail, for all of the stuff that you've done. Now, go home. I'm going to leave Nabal alone. She goes home. She tells Nabal the story. And at dinner that night, the Bible tells us that Nabal became like a stone. And 10 days later, he died. Now, I don't know what became like a stone means, but 10 days later, he died. And then Abigail gets word from David that he knows she is now homeless and he offers for her to come and be his wife. And so she becomes his wife along with a couple other women. And the story is interesting and a little bit weird. And, and so I'm just not going to go into all details with that. You can read the story on your own. But I'm going to skip ahead because I want you to see how David gets tested on this idea. Really briefly, in chapter 26, it says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah. 
and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by, by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I like this line. I won't strike him twice. I'm good at this, David. I know how to spear a guy. But um, you, you saw this last week, remember? Someone said, David, this is now your chance to kill Saul. It's showing up again, right? And David says this, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. He tells this story, we, we read this story, and David here in this moment has the chance to take vengeance into his own hands, but he has learned his lesson, and the lesson that he has learned is that he is only in chapter one or two of a story that God is writing, and he's willing to let God keep writing. This is one of those moments where David is like, one of these days Saul is going to die, it might be of old age. It might be because God takes him down. It might be like Nabal. He turns into a stone or whatever reason. You know, it, I don't know what's going to happen, but David says, God's going to take care of that. I'm not going to. And so he takes the spear and the jug of water and skip ahead just a little bit to verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What, have you, what you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Wow. Verse 22. Here is the king's spear, David answers. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. I want to give you just sort of a, a concluding thought to this. There's going to be all kinds of times in our lives when you're going to encounter a fool. There's going to be all kinds of times in your life where you are going to be a fool. It's just the way life works. 
And when you meet a fool, you're going to be tempted to respond like a fool. When you meet a fool, you're going to be tempted to respond like a fool. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep something in mind. God is writing a better story. God is writing a better story for you. He's writing a better story with you. And he's writing a better story that is going to end up with something glorious. And so just as David says, Saul, I saved you. And I hope that one of these days God saves me. Saul, I spared you. And I'm trusting that God will spare me. You see, David says, I'm willing to let God be in charge of this story. Let God write the better story. I hope that's true for you and me too. We're going to encounter fools, but I don't want to be the kind of person who responds to a fool in a foolish way. I want to be the kind of person who understands there's a better story for my life that God is currently in the midst of writing, and I'm going to let him do it. And I hope that's true for you too. We're going to end with a final song that is a kind of a redo of the champion song we did earlier because the lines in it are just so good that God is the one who is my champion. He's the one who is my rescuer. I don't need vengeance. I don't need any of this other stuff that takes matters into my own hands. I can let God be in charge. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.